0: Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. As they approached Jerusalem, thank you. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, "Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter the village, just as you enter it." You will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing in tying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus curses a fig tree and clears the temple courts. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they were along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots, Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying... If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Amen.
1: Please keep your Bible open to Mark chapter 11. We'll read this uh, and spend our time in this extraordinary chapter together. The city of Jericho is over 800 feet below sea level, which makes it the lowest city in the world. Jerusalem which is just 18 miles away on foot, is a city on a hill, 2,500 feet above sea level. So the walk from Jericho to Jerusalem is uphill, and they say it's exhausting in the hot Middle Eastern sun. Maybe someone, someone here has done it. But that did not put off pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem. There was a carnival atmosphere. They traveled a long way to come. And they only do it a few times a year, maybe not even that much. And when they come, it's like going to a great family gathering, a party. A time to come and celebrate, a time to put aside your normal work and worry, a time to go to the temple and make sacrifices to God, a time to eat meat. The priests in the temple were a cross between a pastor and a barbecue chef. It was a really great thing to do. And as they're walking up the hills, they would sing songs together, and some of them We have in the book of Psalms, the songs of ascents. And they would keep each other going with chanting and songs and laughter and banter. And then they would round a corner and see a marvelous view as they caught sight of Jerusalem, the city, for the first time. And there was the temple gleaming gold. It was covered in gold. And Jesus here is in the middle of this happy crowd of pilgrims. And then a couple of miles out, he's walking along with everyone else, but a couple of miles out, he sends some of his disciples on a curious mission. He will ride into Jerusalem on a borrowed colt. And he rides in on a surge of popular appeal. After three years of keeping it quiet and down low and off the radar, three years of constantly trying to dampen enthusiasm, to be discreet, to avoid controversy and a mass uprising he now does the one thing calculated to gather the most attention and it works of course. The disciples lead the way and the people go wild this is what they've been waiting for he enters Jerusalem like a conquering king and not just the city he rides in majesty right to the temple, the centre of the city, the epicentre of the Jewish world And he strides into this massive structure. But Jesus has not come to gawp at the white marble, glittering gold, and enormous stones and take selfies like a tourist. Nor has he come to offer prayers quietly as a devout pilgrim. He has come to inspect it. And after inspecting the empty temple on Sunday night, Monday morning he returns with a whip. He disrupts every aspect of the temple's core business. Ferociously, he breaks the supply chain and denounces their religion like a wild Old Testament prophet. The owner of the house has come home to rearrange the furniture. And in the Gospel of Mark, this account of the temple is carefully sandwiched in the middle of a weird story. You might have noticed it. The cursing of a fruitless fig tree. It's the only negative miracle Jesus does. And as with the other sandwiches in Mark's gospel, a story begins, then it's paused, another element is put in the middle, and then the the second half of the sandwich finishes the story. And the two halves of the story and the bit in the middle interpret each other. And that's why Mark puts it together like that. This whole section is so rich with drama and full of insight into Jesus and his mission. And you know, it's actually also very practical. It has so much to teach us about the Christian life, what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I think the main point can be summed up in a very simple sentence, and there it is at the top of the screen. True majesty deserves true devotion. True majesty deserves true devotion. Firstly, true majesty. The curious episode of the disciples and the cult it's a word that could be used for a young horse. Matthew's gospel reveals that it's a donkey. What's going on here? These guys are told by Jesus, go into this village and you'll find this colt tied up. No one's ridden on it. And if anybody stops you, just, just tell them the Lord needs it. What, what is going on? Now, it's often assumed uh, that something supernatural is happening here, that Jesus overrides the owner's will with his divine authority, a bit like Jedi mind control. But the text makes nothing of that, doesn't say that. It's probably more likely that this is an arrangement that Jesus has made in advance. Most likely there is a disciple or a person who's on their way to being a disciple who lives in this village near the Mount of Olives and this is a prearranged signal. When they come, they'll say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back shortly. And in verse 6, as soon as the words are mentioned, the people let them take this uh, colt and untie it and take it off. And what happens next is just incredible. The pilgrims know that they're near the end of the journey and there's this air of celebration. They round a corner, they see Jerusalem in the distance. And now here is Jesus who normally walks everywhere when he's not in a boat. He's riding on a colt in the dignity of a visiting king or a great prophet. And people start taking off their cloaks and spreading them on the ground, on the dust, and in the dirt. The, the, the only cloak they have, they're putting it down there so that he can ride as if it were on the red carpet. And they go and they pull branches off the palm trees and they cut foliage out in the fields. So they've got a kind of makeshift banner to wave. Green banners are waving all around, just as others had done centuries before at the coronation of an Israelite king. And the crowd starts to build and build as word spreads. He's here. Jesus, the prophet, is here. Jesus of Nazareth, the one from Galilee, he's actually here. And he's riding in on a colt. And now they're shouting, Hosanna! which means save. And they're quoting the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is a bold claim that Jesus is coming as the Messiah. Now what is he doing here? It's an acted parable. One scholar actually calls this political street theater. Political street theater. Jesus is being political. Because everybody who knows their Bible knows what this means. They know the words of the prophet Zechariah. In chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah had famously said this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is making a statement. He's going public. The king is coming home. And he is no ordinary king. The very next verse in Zechariah proclaims that he's the final king, the king we all need, God's king, the one who will set the world to rights. Here's how Zechariah continues in verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So riding in on a colt sends a message to the city leaders and to everyone who will pay attention. The king has come back. Now notice two things here that combine in an extraordinary way. Absolute authority and complete humility. Absolute authority. Jesus comes and requests your colt This animal that's never been ridden, very valuable, and there is no question and no hesitation, take it. You're the king. He's in absolute authority, and yet he's in complete humility. He comes in humbly, riding on a colt, not a war horse, not a chariot. And see, in Jesus, we we find this combination of meekness and great majesty that is completely unique. He's the servant king. He embodies what he's been teaching in the last two chapters about greatness and being the servant of all. A great king. What kind of king is this? Not on a white war horse or in an armored chariot. The colt is so young that no one has actually ridden on it yet. Matthew's version of the account adds the word humble. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble. And mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." It speaks a powerful word, this, a message about the nature of Jesus' kingship. And there are four words here that say everything you need to know about what kind of king Jesus is. Here's the four words. Are you ready for them? The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. A great uh, Manchester preacher, Alexander McLaren, who led a church just over the road from Whitworth Park for 50 years, said this, The Lord, that is a great title, needs it. That is a strange verb to put with such a title. But this little sentence with its two halves of authority and dependence puts into forwards the whole paradox of the life of Jesus Christ upon earth. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. And being the Lord and owner of all things, he owed his daily bread to ministering women. He borrowed a boat to preach from, a house to lay his head, a shroud and a winding sheet to wrap his corpse, a grave in which to lie and from which to rise the Lord of the dead and of the living. The Lord needs him. You see the two halves? And he still does. Therefore, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, three things flow out of this observation. Firstly, he is the Lord. Jesus is, is not a mere teacher, not, a great, not even a great prophet, as our Muslim friends say. He is the king. And what a king he is. Just think of the implications of majesty. We're kind of out of touch of this in the modern world, but we still have a little glimmer of it. Hilary Mantle, who's an award-winning author, writing in the London Review of Books, talks about when she attended an evening party at Buckingham Palace, and she was in the room when the Queen came in. This is what she said. I had expected to see people pushing themselves into the Queen's path, but the opposite was true. The Queen walked through the reception area at an even pace, hoping to meet someone, and you would see a set of guests, as if swept by the tide, parting before her, or welling ahead of her into the next room. They acted as if they feared excruciating embarrassment should they be caught and obliged to talk. The self-possessed became gauche, and the eloquent was struck dumb. The guests studied the walls, the floor. They looked everywhere except at her majesty. They studied exhibits in glass cases and paintings on the walls, which were, of course, worth looking at. But they studied them with great intentness, as if their eyes had been glued. See, no one wanted to look at the queen and try and talk to her. She's the queen! Now, that's what happens when the Queen of England comes in. What about the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings? Now, if he's the king, Christian friend, There is nothing that he cannot ask of you. There's nothing that he cannot ask of you because he rules your life. The Lord. Secondly, he needs it. Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, has to borrow a donkey. He humbled himself to such a great extent that he only owned the clothes he walked around in. He was homeless for a time. He said, foxes have holes birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was the pauper king. Now this must mean that he has chosen to be like that. And we must never forget this aspect of our Lord's kingship. He was a poor king. And he relied on the help of others. And here's the shocking thing. He still does. He still does. If you're a Christian, then Jesus Christ needs you. You know that? Not in a pathetic, needy way. He doesn't need you to fulfill him. But in the quiet dignity of a truly great one who was chosen to extend his kingdom through humble means. You see, the message of Jesus, the good news, will only be carried into the furthest corners of the earth if ordinary little donkeys, like you and me, will carry it. The kingdom of Jesus will only be extended in the great dark city of manchester if you choose to live in obedient faith day by day and pursue a holy life that shines like a star in a dark world the church of jesus christ will only be built if you sacrifice and give your hard-earned cash to support it he needs you the lord needs you But thirdly, notice this, he is no one's debtor. Verse 3 says, he will send it back shortly. He'll send the borrowed colt back shortly. Now this is so countercultural in the ancient world. Kings and rulers could grab everything they wanted and without so much as a please or thank you, take it and never give it back. How Caesar in his marble palace in Rome would have sneered at a Jewish peasant riding a colt which he promises to return. But that's the point. You never give anything in your life to Jesus and then feel that you've been shortchanged. Amen? When you give to Jesus, you give him your life, you give him your time, you give him your home, you give him your possessions, you come away richer than before. The owner of the colt got it back all right, and no doubt he spent the rest of his days saying, You see that donkey? That's the one that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on in royal glory. It's one shekel a ride. Jesus is no man's, no woman's debtor. So let me ask, do you sense the call of Jesus on your life today to surrender something? Even as we've been meeting and singing and praying, the Holy Spirit is at work among us. You can feel it. What is he doing? What is he prompting you? Do you sense the call of Jesus on your life today to surrender something? Do you need to let go of some of your money and open your sweaty palm and release some of it? Do you need to, to let go of some of your possessions in generous and costly giving? Do you need to surrender your comfort, your me time, those many hours spent watching box sets or relaxing with your partner? in generous and costly service, to surrender your comfort. Do some of you need to surrender your independence and begin for the first time really to trust Jesus and follow him in faith? You know you don't belong to him yet. You don't really want him to be Lord of your life. But the Lord needs it. And he will be no one's debtor. True majesty. Such a king. And such majesty and kingship makes compelling demands on our lives. And that leads us to our second point, which is true devotion. True majesty deserves true devotion. You see, if we really understand who Jesus is, if we really see the big Jesus of the Bible, then everything about us must change. This is why Christianity is so much more than a mere religion, so much more than a a, a philosophy or a set of ethical teachings or a, a social club. It is a kingdom. A civilization with a king Jesus doesn't come into your life and ask you to tidy yourself up a bit stop swearing stop smoking say your prayers and go to church on Sunday really Jesus comes into your life as the Lord of all and he has the right to rearrange all the furniture in your life this is why the question of sexual orientation is in one way quite trivial People make their decision on whether to follow Jesus Christ or not on on the basis of their sexual orientation or their sex life. He is Lord of all. Just part of you. And I suspect the reason why some people here find Christianity so difficult and so challenging is because you won't let him be Lord. You won't let him be Lord. You sort of want Jesus. That's why you're here in church. But you don't really want to let him take charge and take hold of the steering wheel. You want some help from Jesus on certain problems. Maybe you enjoy the warmth and love of Christian community. But is he Lord of your life? No. The problem with that is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It actually will make you more miserable. If he's the king, he deserves true devotion. great theologian of a previous generation, P.T. Forsyth, wrote these words. The fall of many who once said they were Christ's is because they took no serious means with themselves to prosecute their life in him, but were dragged in his wake till they got tired of the strain. Sort of dragging along. It's all a bit miserable. It doesn't work. If he's the king, then he deserves all of you. True devotion. And that, by the way, is what this whole section about the fig tree and the temple is about. Firstly, what's, the, what's going on at the temple? Now, we need to understand how temples work in the Bible, uh, biblical temples, that is. In the beginning, in the book of Genesis, God made all things. We sang about it in that wonderful new song earlier on. He, 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 out of emptiness, he created the fullness of creation. Out of darkness, he brought light. And in that new world that he spoke into being, there was a special place, a sanctuary, a place where humankind could live in the presence of God, and flourish. And it was called the Garden of Eden. It was a place of perfect peace, harmony, and complete fulfillment. But because of sin, we were banished from the sanctuary and excluded from God's presence. Genesis 3 depicts the, the way back being guarded by a, a, a spiritual being with a sword representing the penalty for sin, is death. There is no way back to Eden. And the profound alienation from God that occurred there is the root of all our problems. Our social problems, our relationship problems, our psychological problems. We're alienated from ourselves. Even our environmental problems. Yet God did not give up on humanity. He reached out to his people. He made it possible for them to meet him again. But on a highly restricted and safe basis first of all in the moving sanctuary in the wilderness it was called a tabernacle or a tent of meeting special instructions were given for how it was to be made and then much later in the days of King Solomon around about 950 1000 BC they built a wonderful building it was actually one of the wonders of the ancient world the temple but whether it was the tent in the wilderness, or the temple in Jerusalem, the rituals and the restrictions were the same. You couldn't just stroll in. Only those who were cleansed. And the priests themselves had to minister, constantly washing and offering sacrifice to take away the guilt and the sin of the people. And in the most holy place, the center of the temple, a cubic squared room in the middle that was covered in gold, floor and ceiling, it was like a gleaming gold box, only one priest could go one time a year with a special sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, a day to take away the sin of all God's people. And if he died in there because he had a heart attack or something, no one could go in and rescue him. So this priest used to have ropes attached just in case or because he was struck down by the presence of God. It was a place of great awe, even terror. But it was a place of hope too because that was the one location in the world, the one postcode where you had a chance of meeting the true God yet because of the people's sin and constant disobedience that temple was destroyed it was pulled down brick by brick the gold and silver things were taken away never to be found again the people were exiled and they went to Babylon and remember the bony m song some of you there they wept as they remembered Zion still hope remained God again graciously preserved a remnant And then they returned to the land to rebuild the temple in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They returned with high hopes, buoyed by the words of the great prophet Ezekiel, who spoke a vision about the glory of a future temple that would be full of God's greatness and glory. And it would be so large that it would encompass the nations of the world who would come into it, uniting humanity, because that, after all, was the point of the temple. And the point of Israel was to be a light to the nations, so that God's blessing would come on the whole world. So they set to work, and after much striving and building and and having a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other because of their enemies, they completed the foundations. But on the day that the new foundation was celebrated, the older members of the community wept out loud and cried as they remembered what it was like before. And this new one looked so small and pitiful. But that was the temple that still existed in Jesus' time. It was a shadow of its former glory, this second temple. But it was still the hope of the nation and the center of Judaism. Wherever Jews lived in the world, they would send their temple tax back once a year to pay for the upkeep and the structure. They would direct their prayers to the temple. And every synagogue wasn't a temple in its own right. It was just like an extension room of the true temple in Jerusalem. So why does Jesus blast a poor fig tree, and clear the temple. Now, once again, this is an acted parable. The prophets would do things like this. They would do an action that itself spoke a thousand words. Notice Jesus deliberately does it in the hearing of his uh, disciples, verse 14. The disciples heard him say it. He goes to this tree. He's hungry. And he goes and inspects it, but there's no fruit even though it's covered in leaves. And the text says it's not even the season for figs. Leaves, but no fruit. It's false advertising. It has the appearance of being fruitful, but it's all show. It is fruitless and useless. So Jesus says what is actually in the Greek language a prayer. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, Remember, this is a sandwich, so the two outer bits reflect on the middle. What is this telling us about the temple? The temple is all activity, but it's all show. There is no true love of God there. That's seen in three things. Firstly, there's a commercial decision being made. Have a look at verse 15. Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. They're buying and selling in the temple courts. They overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Now, some have taken this as a kind of anti-commercial polemic. Jesus here, he's he's the Marxist Jesus, taking it back for the people Jesus actually isn't against wealth or wealth creation. And in fact, what they were doing was necessary for the functioning of the temple. Because imagine you've got pilgrims coming from all over the country, sometimes all over the known world. They can't bring an animal with them, can they? It's going to die on the way. So there has to be a way to buy an animal when you get to Jerusalem. They're also coming from all parts of the world with different currency. This is before the euro And when they get there, they have to pay the temple tax in shekels. So you've got to exchange your currency. And they need the things that are needed. And doves are the offering of the poorer person. If you were a poor person, you could still buy and offer a dove. It was acceptable to God. These are all things that are actually necessary. The problem is where it's happening. The high priests have taken a decision that the trading, the changing money... That the animal sales could be happening in, in the actual temple courts. In fact, it's most likely that this was the outermost court, which was the place that the Gentiles could go, the non-Jews. So if you're not a Jew, you could never go into the inner court. But you could go to the outer one and inquire of God there, seek God, pray to him in that place. Those of you who know your Bible will remember the Ethiopian eunuch. He was only allowed in the outer court. He came all the way from Ethiopia, a high court official, carrying his scroll of Isaiah just to seek God. So the earnest seeker, who isn't a Jew, that's where they go to pray. But these priests have made an utterly pragmatic decision. Oh, let the money changing and the animals be put in that court. Don't worry about the Gentiles. And that's another reason why Jesus is mad. Because the whole point of the nation was to be a light To the Gentiles, so that God's glory and word could go out to the ends of the earth, from shore to shore, sea to sea, to the very furthest coastlands. And here, these Gentiles who come to inquire and pray will find a a, a load of bleating and cooing and the sound of money being changed. Smell and noise. Reminds me a bit of uh, when my wife and I visited the Sistine Chapel You know, the Sistine Chapel, I mean, it is an extraordinary thing. I've seen pictures of it for years. And finally, a couple of years ago, we we had a couple of days away in Rome. So we paid our money and went into the Vatican. And we were escorted all around. And we eventually went through all these art galleries, all full of treasures. But you you ignore all the treasures because you want to get to the Sistine Chapel with that wonderful painting of, you know, the creation and the finger of God and all that. And when you finally get there, what do you find? A deeply spiritual moment? No. A deeply commercial moment. In fact, the place is full of people. It's hot. To be honest, a distinct smell of body odor. Lots of signs forbidding you to take photos. And you get moved through at a pace by the guards. Now, the funniest thing about it is that the guards keep shouting, Silence! <laughs> it was a great moment. It's a bit like that commercial decisions pragmatism parochialism don't care about the gentiles in fact their whole life and response to the messiah jesus shows that they're not devoted to god at all they're devoted to lesser things to idols to things that will perish and jesus is so serious about this that he actually quotes prophecy from jeremiah in chapter uh, jeremiah 7 verse 11 if you look in verse 17 it says you have made it a den of robbers now again this isn't some kind of anti-commercial rant it is much deeper than that jeremiah was railing against the temple authorities of his day and saying you have corrupted something that was holy you've perverted the holy worship of god and jesus is saying you're doing the same thing now Why is it a den of robbers? In fact, the word is bandits. These are people who rob elsewhere and come and hide out in the temple. In other words, it's become a place for the wicked to hide. Jesus is attacking them for allowing the temple to degenerate into a safe hiding place for people who think that they can find fellowship with God no matter how they act on the outside. It is utter hypocrisy. And as a result, Jesus isn't just cleaning it up a bit. It is over. It is obsolete. That's why he disrupts the whole process to put an end to it. He is saying this is finished. He's acting out God's judgment on that system and its coming destruction. And it was destroyed in AD 70. This temple was coming to an end. But what does that mean for humanity? It means actually God hasn't finished with us but a new day is here because of Jesus. A new order. And these sayings in verse 22 and following reveal what this new order is like. Have a look with me. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours and when you stand praying if you hold anything against anyone forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins verse 22 this new order that Jesus is bringing is based on faith in God not on our own moral excellence and efforts sheer naked faith in God confidence in him he will do for me what I can't do for myself Verse 23, this new order will overcome insurmountable odds to fill the world with Jesus' kingdom. Verse 24, it will be sustained by grace. What you ask for will be just given to you, not because you earned it. And verse 25, it is characterized by radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Now, this is not a message that faith can move any mountain, but it can move this mountain. And the mountain Jesus is referring to there is the mountain of the temple. Faith would remove it, and it would be cast into the sea, metaphorically, destroyed brick by brick. And out of the ruins came the International Church of Jesus Christ, of which we are one small part. He is the new temple. And if you're a Christian, then you're part of the body of Jesus, which means you are the temple, right? He's the temple, we're his body, so we're the temple now. So where's the temple for the Christian church? There isn't one. There never will be. There is actually no physical sanctuary in the world that is holy, because the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer. And so the temple is filling the world because we are filling the world. There's no need for a physical temple anymore because now God is flinging his people out to fill every corner of the earth. And you know, this is a very exciting time to be alive, the beginning of the 21st century. Because there are more people in the world today, one in four people in the world claim to be Christian, and there's a Christian church in every country. And in many, many countries and even continents, the church is pressing out in great faith and vigour. Tens of thousands of people are being added to the Church of Jesus Christ every single day. We sometimes lose sight of this in Europe. We're the odd one out at the moment, but a new day will come. Now, I said at the start of this section of the Bible is highly practical. And I want to just drive home four things to take away and reflect on this week. As you think about how true majesty deserves, inspires true devotion. And not just reflect on these things, what do you act on them? Firstly, prayer. Prayer. Jesus says that His family, his community, will be full of prayer. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you receive it, it will be yours. Believing prayer. We are called upon to be people of prayer. For our lives, our days, to be full of prayer because we're living in dependence upon God, not on ourselves. So let me ask you, are you becoming a person of prayer? Now there are all sorts of things we can do to help one another grow in our prayer lives. Jenny Clifford, who is sitting somewhere over there, produces a monthly prayer calendar. Just a prayer a day so you can pray for things that are going on with Grace Church And it's mission partners. We have a WhatsApp group. Probably more than one of them. You can sign up. People will pray for you. Give prayer requests on it. We have life groups that meet in different locations in the city during the week. Once a month they devote an evening to prayer. We just did it this Thursday. Wonderful time. There are lots of ways we can help each other pray. But you know what? At the end of the day it comes down to you. Deciding that you're going to rest in Jesus. And trust God. And come to him in prayer. And if you don't pray much, you will be spiritually weak. If you don't pray much, you are spiritually weak, open to temptation, discouragement, despair. Because you're cutting yourself off from the source of your spiritual life. If you feel dry, how much are you praying? Now I'm not here to scold you. This is in all our interest, to become a person of prayer. Now, you may not be able to get up at 5 a.m. and pray for two or three hours, as some great saints of the past had. But don't think because you can't do that that you can't pray. You can pray through the whole day and carry on an ongoing communion with God and pray with other people when you can. Are you becoming a person of prayer? Secondly, are you becoming a person of forgiveness? This is equally important in Jesus' new order. When you stand praying, listen to this, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. If you won't forgive another person, then the Father in heaven can't forgive you. You have put a cloud between you and God, and there's no longer a blue and cloudless sky. Your own lack of forgiveness, your own grudge, is cutting you off from the source of life. So forgiveness, again, is immensely practical for your benefit. What does forgiveness look like? Timothy Keller comments on this. Forgiveness is demanded here. Whether or not the person has asked for forgiveness. Ooh. That's what he says. That's what Jesus says. Whether or not the person has asked for forgiveness, we should forgive. It is required of us, even if the other person has not repented. Forgiveness thus is to be granted before it is felt. Now, for some of you, that might be the way to unlock a relationship that has been blighted by a lack of forgiveness for some time. Grant them forgiveness. Stop taking revenge. Forgiveness is a promise of three things. I won't bring the matter up to another person. Aren't we prone to do that? You know, I'll just go and talk to someone else about it. It makes me feel better. No, if we forgive, we won't bring the matter up to the other person, to another person. We won't bring the matter up to the other person, and we, will keep, we won't keep bringing it up to ourselves. Just imagine if we all lived like that. What kind of a community this would be? Shining with forgiveness and true love. Thirdly, if we, a practical action here is Giving. Remember the cult and the person who gladly laid their possessions down at Jesus' disposal. Uh, we're going to have this family meeting this afternoon. Dan's already mentioned it. And At the end of the family meeting, we're going to talk a little bit about church finances. I just want to flag this up. We think our, our, we will be uh, losing £25,000 in the next five months. So in other words, every month we spend 5000 more than we, re- we, we receive. So our ministry cannot continue like this. God has provided for us. We can get through those five months, but we will need to shore up those foundations. Uh, Is God asking you to open your hand today? Please don't wait till the summer. Fourth practical application is our witness. Now, Jesus is the king of the universe, but he needs people who will carry him into new places into new relationships, into new lives, just like that little donkey. True majesty deserves true devotion. Do we we love him and think highly enough of Jesus that we can talk of him to other people? I don't mean that you become a sort of a a weird Christian who has to twist every conversation to talk about Jesus. That's off-putting. But a person of integrity who can at some time speak up and say what the Lord has done for you might even be as simple as saying what you did on Sunday morning. and Take the risk and see what people say. Will you carry him wherever you go this week? He's the one who deserves the glory. But we are so prone to crave it for ourselves, aren't we? We're not so very different from those two disciples who asked for the high place in the kingdom. We need to be, keep being reminded it's not about me, it's about him. Amen. A story is told of a little cult. One day, he woke up with a big smile on his face. He'd been dreaming of the previous day. He got up, and he happily walked out into the street. But many people passing by simply ignored him. Confused, he went to the crowded marketplace. With his ears held high with pride, he swaggered right down the middle of it. Here I am, people, he said to himself. But they just glanced at him in confusion, and some struck him to drive him away. What do you think you're doing, you ass? walking into the marketplace like this. Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in astonishment. Hurt and confused, the little colt returned home to his mother. I don't understand, he said. Yesterday they waved palm branches at me. They were shouting, Hosanna, hallelujah. Today they treat me like I'm a nobody. The mother replied, you foolish child. Don't you realize that without him... You can do nothing. Let's pray.